All right, I'll try to be timely this morning. Our Bible study is, an, is going to be examining the crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Red Sea. Now, it turns out that about a week ago, uh, this congregation was exposed to a song that was new. And it had been introduced in the week prior at youth camp. It was a song that actually I had learned in my past life, I don't know, many, many years ago I had learned the song. But it was a song about the crossing of the Red Sea and how God destroyed Pharaoh's army and saved the Israelites. And it, it, it's, a, it, was a, it's a beautiful, beautiful scriptural hymn. And last week we were exposed to it for, for, for many of you, I think, the first time. Now... <laughs> As, as I reflected as the week went by, I was really just inspired by the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Most of us generally know the story. I don't think I need to repeat necessarily the, the basic simple concepts that go into the crossing of the Red Sea. But I think it's worthy of exploring in a little more detail. And that's our purpose today. Because it turns out that the crossing of the Red Sea was one of the great miracles of Scripture. It was one of the great events of Bible history. It's right up there, right up there in terms of all the monumental things that God did. Creation, Noah's flood, the crossing of the Red Sea is one of the tremendous great events in scriptural history. And it's possible that we don't give it enough attention. Well, let's, plunge, let's just go ahead and plunge in. Let me just add this, though. If you just look at all the references in the Bible to the crossing of the Red Sea, our Israelite ancestors understood how vital that event was and how tremendous that event was because it's referred to again and again and again and again. There are dozens of references scattered throughout the Old and the New Testament that talk about the crossing of the Red Sea in, in, a, in a way that is just so tremendous and so wonderful that I think it's just worthy of our exploration. So let's get started on it. If you'll open up your Bibles, you're going to find the story in Exodus chapter 14. All right? Exodus chapter 14. We'll probably end up having to read uh, all of this chapter before we're done. So you might turn there. We're going to spend a little time in recounting the story in, with a little bit of detail. But let's just begin by capturing the highlights. It was one of the most stunning miracles of the entire Bible. Some of us might have a mental picture. I don't know what mental image you have when you think of the crossing of the Red Sea. For probably a lot of people of my generation, you might think of Charlton Heston with the great staff and, the, 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 and watching him lean across the waves and then see the, the, the ocean open up. Now as you read the text with me of Exodus 14, you can answer for yourself, do you think that that once very popular movie, it was so popular that movie was once, they, they played it on public television, uh, on, the, on ABC played that once every year at Easter time. Every year on Sunday night of Easter Sunday night, ABC played it every year Year after year after year after year until finally ABC was taken over by the liberals and it's been destroyed ever since. But meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, 
that particular film left kind of a big footprint for people my age and, and a bit older. I don't know what our young people think of when they see the crossing of the Red Sea in their mind's eye, or they hear about it. I don't know what they visualize. But if I could raise from the dead, and this isn't part of my notes, but the man who made that movie, now this is just my humble opinion, and I'm not much of a movie critic. Some of you are probably much far wiser than I. But the man who made that movie was a, uh, was a, a really godly man named Cecil B. DeMille. He probably died in 1970. But he was, he made God big in that movie. And the, that movie attempted to bring honor to Jehovah. Bible critics and scholars, those who are, have particularly in the last century, the Bible scholars and critics have done an enormous disservice to this story. And so we're going to try to talk just real quick about how to correct their wrong. Because they've done a lot to undermine this tremendous biblical event. So let's have a look, examine at this story. You probably recall and know enough to know that the, the crossing of the Red Sea followed Passover. It was the culmination of a series of miracles. There were ten plagues upon the Egyptians. The greatest of the ten plagues was the death of the firstborn. And following that, immediately, on the day of Passover, that night, the children of Israel packed up their things and left the land of Egypt. And they journeyed to the east, and they came to the Red Sea, and there they had to, to get help from our Father in heaven. But it turns out that the, the crossing of the Red Sea, in many respects, can be considered uh, a battle. It was a battle. It was actually, in a sense, it was the conclusion of a war, a war between Egypt, Pharaoh on one side, and Jehovah on the other. It was the final battle. Pharaoh's army was, of course, completely destroyed. And out of this event emerged a nation. A nation. Now, because our ancestors and our, the, of, of this country, our colonial ancestors understood the significance of the Red Sea crossing more than we do today, they saw the emergence of a new nation called the United States of America as a parallel to the emergence of the ancient nation of Israel. And so, you'll see on your outline there an, an, an image, a circular image to the right. That circular image was a proposal put forth in August of 1776 by Benjamin Franklin. As the new nation was being formed, our new nation, the United States of America was being formed, and they were beginning to try to put together the, all of the trappings that a nation ought to have, Benjamin Franklin proposed that the national emblem, the national seal of the United States of America, ought to be the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's army. And so this particular image that you're looking at on that outline was his proposal. 
he proposed in writing, and he produced a document that described what he wanted an artist to produce. And what you're looking at is what an artist later produced at the instructions of Benjamin Franklin and with the encouragement of Thomas Jefferson. And you'll notice the words that they selected. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And you'll see the cloud and the flame. You'll see Moses with his arms outstretched. And then you'll see Pharaoh's army charging into the waters only to be swallowed up by them. The crossing of the Red Sea was notable enough to our ancestors to say, we want our nation to be like unto the Hebrew nation. And we want to reconnect to this formative event. Now, one of the things that has undermined the miraculous elements of this are, are scholars. <laughs> scholars. You can count on scholars to muddy the water, so to speak. <laughs> and they've done that. There's been a lot of debate about where the location of this event might have occurred. And so I need to talk about that for just a few moments before we get into the biblical account. You'll see at the bottom of the page, I've put a couple of graphics there for your edification. In the bottom left corner, you'll see a, a map of Egypt in the Middle East. You'll see Egypt located there, and you'll see the dark, curvy uh, course of the Nile and the Nile Delta on the left. And then you'll see a couple of arrows. Those arrows represent two of the highways that go to the east. Two possible ways you can exit and leave Egypt. Now the, the, the top highway, Scripture particularly tells us that the Israelites did not take the arrow at the top. That is the coastal highway that goes by the way of the Philistines. It takes you to the land of the Philistines. The Israelites definitely did not take that route. The lower area does appear to be the pathway that the Israelites probably took when they left Egypt, in which they crossed what is now called the Sinai Peninsula, heading for the land of Midian. Now, there's a lot we could say, and there's a lot of research goes into all of this. But what I've done is I've tried to just kind of summarize a couple of basic thoughts. Now, the traditional spot that scholars have tended to light upon as their preferred location for this miracle is where, about where you see the letter A. Now, letter A in ancient times was a lake. It was a shallow, marsh-filled, reed-filled lake. And the reason that scholars kind of like that is because in Hebrew, what is called the Red Sea in Hebrew is Yom Suf. And Yom Suf literally means reed sea. Reed as in bulrushes. Skeptics of miracles seize upon that fact and they say, Aha! The Israelites waded through a shallow lake that had bulrushes sticking up and that's how they escaped. And they have lit upon that particular spot where that A appears where there was once a shallow lake. 
on the eastern border of Egypt. Of course, a, 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 an honest reading of the biblical account and an honest reading of all of the other verses in Scripture that describe the story can put that to rest rather quickly. But scholars and skeptics, being the sort of people that they are, are, seem to have this proclivity, want to downplay miracles and make them all look like some sort of a naturalistic explanation. So scholars have really done a really bad deed. And it's amazing how many seemingly sensible scholars think, oh, it was just a big, big shallow lake and the Israelites managed to wade across and the chariots of the Egyptians kind of got stuck in the mud and so they escaped. <laughs> Well, of course, that's not how the Bible describes it at all. Now, there has been, in the last 30 or 40 years, quite a bit of research being done by people who have a little money to throw at the problem to try to find an alternative location. And there are a couple of alternative locations that I think sound very promising. And the, the one that I think is probably the best, and this is just my opinion, I've put on that same map the letter B. Now, you'll notice on that map, you'll see two rabbit ears. The rabbit ears are the two portions of the Red Sea that stick up. You have the Gulf of Suez, and the other one is known as the Gulf of Aqaba. Now, I believe approximately about where the letter B is, is, is where they cross the Red Sea, which is one of the arms of the Red Sea, where it is about, oh, about six, seven miles wide at that location. I think that's about how wide it is. It's about a thousand feet deep. It is, it is big, it is ocean-like, so, so to speak, and it, it, it's an apt description, I think, of where it might have occurred. <coughs> so you'll see there, I think a better spot is a region wedged between the mountains and the Gulf of Aqaba. Now, in Scripture, if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 14, let me read just a couple of verses for you, if you'd like to. So please follow along your Bible. We're going to eventually get into the text here and spend a little time in Exodus 14 examining a little bit of the nuts and bolts, the crossing the Red Sea. But the location has a little bit of importance because of the miraculous nature. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to defend the miraculous nature of the crossing of the Red Sea as the Bible describes it and not dumb it down to just wading across a boggy lake. Now, Exodus 14, let's read in verse 1. I'll tell you what, what let's, read, let's read the first four verses together. Exodus 14, 1 through 4. If you've got your Bible with me, please open up. Let's read Exodus 14, 1 through 4. Are you ready? Let's go. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pi-hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, over against Beth-Zephon, before it ye shall encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, the wilderness hath shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Well, it turns out those verses actually have some pretty powerful clues. First of all, it turns out that, that, that they, God told them to camp in Pi-Hahiroth. Now that word Pi-Hahiroth is kind of a mouthful for us, but it literally means the mouth of the gorges. The mouth of the gorges, as a gorge as in a canyon. 
It's a location where canyons come together and then open up all of a sudden. Well, that's actually a very excellent clue. That's where they were told to encamp. And they camped right there between mountains and a very large body of water. So does such a place exist? Well, it does, but it has nothing to do with point A up there where the shallow marsh is. There's a perfect spot down there at point B where there are gorges that come together. In fact, what I've done is I've given you another little image there to help you on this particular point. And you'll see in the lower right hand of the outline of an image where I have a big C. It turns out that large flat place is right next to the Gulf of Aqaba. There are mountains and you can see where there's a gorge that they followed. They walked along that, that, that snaky little flat gorge along the bottom there until it, 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 it led them to the coastline. And there they encamped. Now the significance of that location is that it was a lovely flat spot where they could be at peace, but it was a terrible location if you're trying to escape from someone chasing you. And that is why Pharaoh said in verse number 3 of chapter 14, Pharaoh said, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Pharaoh thought that they were trapped. You see, what they had done, most likely, is they followed that lower road heading for the land of Midian. The land of Midian. Now, the land of Midian, it tells us, that is in Arabia, in the book of Galatians. It tells us that Galatia, the, the Mount Sinai, is in Arabia, and Arabia is what we now call Midian. Now, I don't really believe, it is not my, I'm, I'm of the opinion that the current mountain that is known as Mount Sinai is not the real mount of God, from, based on what I understand. And of course, there's room for debate and all these sorts of things. But the point I'm trying to drive at is this. I think the, the location that I've outlined here is, is, a, is a much better location that fits the description. And it turns out that this is actually a detour from the main highway. And when the children of Israel followed God's instructions and left the main highway to Midian and took this detour south, Pharaoh heard about this and he said, <laughs> they've trapped themselves. And that is why Pharaoh went after them. God trapped Pharaoh. He trapped Pharaoh in his own ambitions, in his own bitterness, so that God could rescue the Israelites and destroy Pharaoh in this tremendous event. So Pharaoh thought they were trapped, and that is where they went. Now, let's go ahead and look a little further. And, and if, if you have interest in this, we could talk later on, on the geography of it all. But I'd like to really dig in now to the text a little further and consider some of the details of the text and look at some of the uh, aspects of the Red Sea crossing, how it was been, how it was described. One of the things that we've got to, to, to consider now is, is, is all of the, the, the monumental terms when we look at the account. All right? So let's now read a little bit more in Exodus chapter 14 and, and see what we can glean about this story. Let's pick it up at verse number 5. So Pharaoh now is chasing, has made the decision to chase after them. They have, there's a particular geographic location where they were at. It was strategically a bad place. It was a terrible place for the children of Israel to be. 
That's what caused Pharaoh to come after them. But it was exactly, it turns out, that's what God wanted of them so that he could put them in this tight spot so that he could rescue them and thus miraculously destroy Pharaoh's army. So let's keep reading. Exodus 14. Let's pick it up at verse 5 and join me if you would. We'll read a little bit further. Are you ready? Here we go. Exodus chapter 14, beginning at verse 5. Let's read together. Everybody have your Bible open, King James Bible, Exodus 14, verse 5. Let's continue. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot, and took his people with him. And he took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt, and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with a high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, and his horsemen, and his army, and overtook them in camping by the sea beside Pihahiroth before Baal-Zephon. All right. Before we go any further, make sure you understand what it means for Pharaoh to take how many chariots? 600. Now, a chariot in the ancient world was equivalent to what today we might call, people compare it to a, a, a what they might call a main battle tank. It was a highly mobile and destructive force that had an incredible intimidating effect on men on the battlefield. It was, they were more expensive, but far more terrifying than men on horseback. And they had the mobility of horses and could outrun and encircle any troops who were on foot, but they had the additional advantage of carrying several men on each chariot. And so while one man guides the horses, you have, may have two, three, or even four men with archers, shooting arrows, or long spears, or other little features that they have to intimidate the people that are on the ground. And 600 chariots is an exceedingly large force in ancient history. This was a huge army. This was the cream of his army. It was, it was, it was the biggest, probably one of the largest chariot forces probably ever assembled in ancient history. So this was a tremendous force that came after the children of Israel, and Pharaoh was going to undo, he was going to reverse everything that had happened over the past weeks regarding the plagues and the death of the firstborn and the children of Israel having left not many days prior to this event. So here they come, these chariots coming after them. Men on, men on these, 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 these advanced weapons of war. Now, <clears throat> let's go a little further. Let's pick up the story again at verse number, well, let's, let's just pick it up at 10. We'll read a little more. Are you ready? Back to our text. Exodus chapter 14, continuing at verse number 10. With me together, please read. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? 
Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians, for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you this day. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and shall hold your peace. Let's just pause right there. Now there's, there's a lot of things we're going to have to come back to, but just, just two quick thoughts. Notice that when the armies descended upon the children of Israel, there were two different responses among the children of Israel. Some of them cried unto the Lord, and some of them didn't. We'll come back to that. And then Moses tells them, he speaks in these wonderful words of encouragement. Moses says, fear not. And he says, see the salvation of the Lord. And he says, the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. This is the final conflict. This is it. You are going to see something unbelievable and amazing, and you will see them never again ever. Well, let's continue. We're in verse 15, shall we? Let's continue along a little further. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. But lift up thou thy rod, stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, and upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me my honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed, and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face, and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. It was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Let's pause. All right, are you getting the mental picture here? You're getting the mental picture. The children of Israel are trapped between the mountains and the sea. The pillar and cloud that was guiding them moved and went between them to hold back Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh's army was now unable to make contact with the children of Israel. And it told us that it was light to the children of Israel and darkness to Pharaoh's army. So we see the first element of this miraculous event. And then, of course, the main event begins to unfold. A strong east wind blows all night. It opens up a path of dry ground after Moses had lifted up his rod across the sea. And the children of Israel walked upon dry ground across the sea. And one final mental picture that I love. 
What does it say about the water? It says it was a wall. Where was the wall? Uh, It says on their right hand and on their left was a wall. A wall of water. And that's why I say, bless Cecil B. DeMille. Because when I was a little 10-year-old kid and watched that movie over and over, because there wasn't much else to watch. (laughs) By golly, that's what he showed. He showed a wall of water many feet high on two sides and the children of Israel walking on dry ground right beneath, right below. God bless that man's soul for putting that thought, that biblical thought, into my immature little head where it has been ever since. Would to God that we had people who were willing to make a movie like that today. Hard to imagine, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, well, at any rate, that's another conversation, I suppose. But you see, this was no small miracle. This was not a, this was not a trivial thing. This was, this was an unbelievable event that, that had never been seen before. All right, well, let's continue a little further. Let's pick up verse 23 and read on to the end of the chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> verse 23, together, please. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch, the Lord looked into the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels so that they drave them heavily. As the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel. For the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, and upon their chariots, and upon their horses. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots, and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So here we have this immense event, this monumental, stunning deliverance in which the the, the largest and most powerful army, this, this, this force of 600 chariots were utterly destroyed. Not a single one of the Egyptians were saved Uh, as as I read it here. And yet all of the Israelites were saved. Every last one of them. So we've got to try to capture and remind ourselves of just the the, the immensity of this power and this miracle. Now, let's look, take a few minutes and kind of scan through a few other passages in Scripture. There's many places we could go and we'll only look at a few of them. But if we want to return to the outline... I want to just, just emphasize some of the, the, these tremendous things because the rest of Scripture also describes this crossing in monumental terms. So first off, 
And there's a couple of different places we could go. But first off, the crossing was a huge, the body of water they crossed was a huge wave-filled deep body of water. It was not a shallow lake of reeds. It was this deep body of water, very ocean-like. And just one verse that we could look at, we could go to Nehemiah and we could go different places. But let me just read for you Isaiah 51 and verse number 10. Of the many locations in Scripture that remind us of this miracle, Isaiah 51.10 reads like this. It says, Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? God ransomed Israel. God saved Israel. They passed over and through the waters. And it describes these as a great deep. By the way, the word sea, constantly we see the word sea. Do you know what the word sea means in Hebrew? It turns out it means to roar. It means to roar. So imagine going to the ocean and the waves are crashing on the shoreline. And so many of you have been to oceans. And as the waves crash, they roar, don't they? This was not a lake. This was not an inland body of water that had you know, muddy bulrushes and reeds sticking up and you just kind of skip your way across and, and the chariots get stuck in the mud. It's just, not, it's just not an honest reading of the text of Scripture. So this is a crossing the huge wave-filled deep body of water. Now there's a passage in Scripture that is another miraculous element and this is emphasized over and over again. Hebrews 11 of course, Hebrews 11 is famous and it's a wonderful chapter uh, regarding the, the people of our ancestors that we have as our heroes. But Hebrews 11.29 mentions the crossing of the Red Sea. Among the other great events of Scripture, it mentions the crossing of the Red Sea. Verse 29 says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned. Again and again, we find that the ground they crossed on was dry. It was dry. Psalm chapter 78. There's multiple places where it describes the waters on the left and on the right. And you may have already noticed that twice in Exodus 14, in verse 22 and verse 29, twice it says... The waters were like a wall on the left hand and on the right, like a wall. Psalm 78 describes it this way. In verse 13, it reads, God divided the sea, caused them to, caused them to pass through, and he made the waters to stand as a heap. They are piled up. The water was piled up to the left and to the right. Psalm 106 tells us something else about Pharaoh's army, and it emphasizes this, as does Exodus chapter 14. It talks about how the enemy was completely destroyed. Let me read for you from Psalm 106, beginning of verse 7. In fact, you might want to turn there. It's a wonderful, a little more lengthy account. Psalm 130, excuse me, Psalm 106, 
beginning at verse number 7, Psalm 106, verse number 7, Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but they provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. So that's, that's, this is now chiding how the children of Israel didn't have confidence in God the way they should have. But keep, keep reading, verse 8. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths, as through the wilderness. And he saved them from the hand of him that hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. It was the final and utter destruction of Pharaoh's army. Now the monumental aspects of this miracle had a consequent effect on other people in this part of the world. There's several places in Scripture that describe the effect that this had on other people around the world. And it turns out in Exodus 15, in what's known as the Song of Moses and Miriam, it, it, re, it reflects this. So let me read for you a couple of verses from Exodus 15. It's starting at um, verse number 14, The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on in the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm shall they be still as a stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord. Till thy people pass over, which thou hast purposed. And there's another wonderful reference to this. When the children of Israel finally did enter the land of Canaan under Joshua, and they began to encamp before the walls of Jericho, you might remember the spies that went into the land of Canaan and were hid by Rahab in the city of Jericho. Now that lady had a report for them. And she tells them in Joshua chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, what everybody in Jericho in the land of Canaan thought about the Israelites showing up at their borders. She said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of Jordan, Sion and Og, whom he utterly destroyed. So the Canaanites were already terrified by the reports that had come forth. This is actually years prior now. This is after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. 40 years later, Rahab and the Canaanites were terrified to hear that the Israelites were knocking on their door. These people that God had rescued from the jaws of certain destruction in the crossing of the Red Sea. It's also interesting that, that uh, water crossings have a little bit of a history in the, in, the, in the history of Israel. Turns out that stressful water crossings 
are, are marked in several locations in Scripture. Let me just give you a couple of them real quick. How many of you remember Jacob returning to the land of Canaan? You might restore, let me just give, recap the story of Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother, Esau. They didn't get along. Jacob ended up fleeing from Esau's wrath and journeying to the land uh, far away where he uh, worked for his uncle Laban and he ended up getting his wives. Well, as the years went by, Jacob said, it's time for me to go home. And so Jacob begins to come home. As he comes home, though, he reaches a river called the Jabbok River. The Jabbok River was a borderland on the east side of the land of Canaan. It was actually a river that flowed into the Jordan River. It was a tributary of the Jordan River. And there on the banks of the Jabbok River, Jacob had a crisis. He was terrified of entering the land, of returning to the land because he thought his brother was going to kill him. And so there that night, you remember, he wrestled with an angel, didn't he? The crossing of that river, Jabbok, was a moment of extreme stress. He wrestled with the angel all night long. The angel gave him a permanent limp, but also gave him a great promise and said, Jacob, I'm giving you a new name. Jacob was given the name Israel. And Jacob and his descendants are known as Israelites ever since. So crossing that modest river, Jabbok, was a stressful water crossing that left a great mark on the children of Jacob. That is hence where we get our name, Israel. There was another great water crossing that was stressful. And you can read about that in Joshua chapter 3. The Jordan River, when Joshua was getting ready to enter the land, was also also had to be miraculously crossed. It turns out it was at flood stage. If you'd like to read about it in Joshua chapter 3, it describes how the river was at flood stage. The children of Israel couldn't cross it, and so God gives them specific instructions about how the, the, the priests are going to carry the Ark of the Covenant and wade into the river first, and the river literally stopped flowing. And the water describes the water as piling up on the upstream side and the water continued to flow away on the downstream side and they crossed again miraculously on dry ground while the water piled up in a mountain on the upstream side while the children of Israel crossed. So it's kind of an interesting feature that God uses these water crossings as points of stress to illustrate his power and his might and his providence for the children of Israel. Now, I'd like to return to a rather important point. Um, and a pra it's a very practical one. Go back to Exodus 14. I want you to recap with me a couple of verses. <clears throat> Just like the children of Israel have particular moments of stress in their national life, in the development of the children of Israel, Jacob had a moment in his, the life of his family and his clan when they're going to go back into the land of Israel and he had to cross the Jordan River, the Jabbok River. The children of Israel had this stressful crossing of the Jordan River. They had this stressful crossing of the Red Sea. I want you to look at, at chapter 14 now of Exodus again. And I want you to go to verses 10 and 11 and 12. I want to look at those three verses and examine 
briefly how children of Israel responded to this moment of stress, this moment of high anxiety. Let's look at what they did. All right, are you ready? Let me read for them again. It says, When Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their voices, their eyes, rather, excuse me, lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So that's the first response. Some of the children of Israel, when they saw the army of Egypt advancing, their first instinct was to what? Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Now, if you look up the word cry, it doesn't mean with tears. It doesn't mean weep. And it doesn't mean speak. It means to speak with a loud voice. They cried out to the Lord. They cried. They, they raised their voice. God save us. They lifted up their voice to their creator. And they looked to God for deliverance. Yet not all of them. There was a second response. There was another group of Israelites. Now the Bible doesn't divide it out perfectly for us. But there were others that said something different. Notice verse 11. It says, They said unto Moses, Because there are no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore, that is, why have you dealt with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? And in verse 12, Is this not the word that we would tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? And then they go on to say, some of them, it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die in the wilderness. So from what I can perceive from this passage, some of the children of Israel cried out to the Lord for deliverance, and some of them turned on Moses and said, we told you we shouldn't have come out here. We told you we should have just stayed and remained slaves in Egypt. We should have just stayed right where we were. We told you not to follow your God out into the wilderness. They wanted to go back. They preferred the life of a slave rather than the life of freedom and liberty that we have in Christ, in God, in Jehovah. So, most of us, I'm sure, would like to believe that had we been there on that day, that we would have responded well. That we would have cried out to the Lord and we would not have turned on Moses. Most of us would like to think that I would, have, I would respond as a person of faith and confidence. And I wouldn't freak out. And I wouldn't collapse in the face of oppression, in the face of anxiety, and in the face of fear. I won't collapse and do the wrong thing. I don't know what I would have done for sure. I don't know that you know that what you would have done for sure. I don't know if it's possible for us to know. But it is possible to perceive what we ought to do. And how we ought to respond. And how, if we'd been there, how we would have liked to have responded. It is possible for us to know how we should respond now when faced with moments of stress and doubt. When Satan thrusts upon us a kind of a 
pressure that makes you say to yourself, I think I'll just take my faith and scoot it aside. Brush, brush that off. And I don't want people to know what I believe. It'd be better if I would just not have to carry this burden of being a believer of Jesus Christ, a person who believes in the truth of Israel, a person who believes in the commandments of God, a person that follows the Sabbath or the festivals, a person that believes that racial segregation is a good and wise course. I don't want people to believe that. I'd rather just go back and be a slave. At least it's quiet little life. Quiet little life under the thumb of Pharaoh. Well, we have Pharaohs today, don't we? We have our own Pharaohs. We have our own Pharaohs that have a heavy hand that they'd like to muzzle us and keep us down, to keep us quiet, quiescent. Now, I'm not arguing that we have to <laughs> cast our pearls before the swine. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't be wise as servants and harmless as doves. But I am arguing that if we act upon our fears, we're almost certainly going to act wrong. If we let our fear carry us, it will take us almost surely in the wrong direction. And there will be moments of fear. And at that moment, you must hang on to your faith and be a person of faith and not a person of fear. And it won't be easy. There will be others who will be reacting badly. There will be friends and neighbors who will say to you, let's go back to Egypt. Are you going to be the kind of person who's willing to go back to Egypt and cash in your faith? Or are you going to say, well, so here I am, I'm between the mountains and the sea. Here I am, I'm trapped between the mountains and the deep blue sea, and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You know what Moses told the children of Israel to do? Did you read that? Did you catch it now, what Moses told them in the verses that follow? Do you know what he told them to do when they didn't know what to do? They didn't know what to do. What did he tell them? Well, he said that. But in terms of actually physically doing something, you know what he told them to do? Verse 13. Verse 13, when, when, when you're overwhelmed and you don't know what to do, and there's pressure upon you to cave, to do something by caving in, and you think caving in is the thing I should do, Moses told the children of Israel in verse 13, he said, Fear ye not, stand still. Stand still. What does that mean? It just means... You don't have to necessarily do anything except wait on God's deliverance. You don't have to be, have the answer. When you're between the mountain and the deep blue sea and you don't have an answer, just don't cave in. Just stand still and wait for the salvation of God. That's enough. You don't have to say, oh, I'm a man of action, I have a solution. No, sometimes you don't have a solution. That's true, isn't it not? Sometimes you really don't have a solution, you don't know what to do. And that's not necessarily the end of the world if you don't know what to do. 
just stand. Stay faithful and do what you've done, which at this moment in time is just don't cave in. Just don't quit. Just don't throw in the towel. And just wait for the salvation of God. Fear not. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord. And let him open up the Red Sea. He's going to open that door that you don't see. He's going to give you that escape. He's got, that window's going to open if you'll just wait for it to open. So how do you respond now when life's stresses entangle you? Well, even if you don't have a solution, at least you can do this. Fear not. Do your best not to fear. And stand still and wait for the salvation of God. Now, as a final area, Paul makes a wonderful allusion to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So I'd like you to turn with me real quick, and let's, let's look uh, in the few moments we have left. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's an interesting parallel that Paul points to the church at Corinth. As Paul talks about the history of Israel, and he talks about their faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse number 1, Paul tells the church children of Israel at Corinth. This is, these are Greek-speaking Corinthians now. He says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. There they are. That's the crossing of the Red Sea he's referring to. In verse 2, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were all baptized in a sense. And did all eat the same spiritual meat. And did all eat the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So Paul is harking back to these ancient events of the children of Israel. As a teaching tool for the children of, of uh, of Israel now at the city of Corinth, these Greek-speaking Corinthians. And he's pointing something out. He's drawing a parallel in terms of the covenant nature of the Christian experience. He's saying the Red Sea crossing was a watery right of entry into a national covenant. It was a national covenant status that they, the children of Israel entered into. They were passing from being a bunch of slaves to being a nation, a covenant nation with God. And the Red Sea crossing was a watery right of entry into that covenant status. And he's telling them that baptism, similarly, water baptism as we practice it, is a watery right of entry into a covenant status. It was membership into the church. Membership into the Christian church is by the watery right we call water baptism. And he's pointing out a couple of things. In both cases, back in the days of Israel, when they walked through the Red Sea, and in the case of the Christian church in the New Testament era, everybody participates in this watery rite. Old, young, female, male, everybody participates. And in both cases, it's accomplishing the same goal. It's a salvation from certain destruction. In the Old Testament, it was the certain destruction of the 
Pharaoh's army, the chariots of 600, would have certainly destroyed those who did not go through the cloud and the sea in this watery rite of covenant entry. And in the case of water baptism, it is saving your soul from eternal damnation. It is the seal of salvation. It is the seal and the mark of God's ownership upon your life, young, old, male, and female. So Paul uses the Red Sea crossing as a teaching tool for the New Testament church. Finally, we won't read these verses, but Exodus chapter 14 is the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, but Exodus chapter 15 is the Song of Moses. Now I'd like um, those that I've asked to, to participate in this song, I'd like them to come on up to the front, if they would please. And those who are supposed to pass out the sheet, song sheet, please do that quickly. We're going to close this Bible study with a song. All right? So get those sheets passed out quickly. We need to pass those out rather rapidly. But as a preface to this, <clears throat> Exodus chapter 15 is the description of the story. It recounts the whole story all over again, beginning at verse number 1 and going all the way down to verse number 21. Moses and his sister Miriam recount the entire story of the crossing of the Red Sea, the walking through the dry land, the walls of water, the destruction of, of Pharaoh's army, the chariots and the horses being cast into the sea, all of them drowning, all of that is, is recounted again in Exodus chapter number 15. And that's the, the, the story of, 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 of the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, scholars have said, I say scholars, you've got to be careful with scholars, as I've already pointed out, but there are many who have said that this song that we learned last week, and we're going to sing again right now, is Israel's national anthem. It was Israel's national anthem. This was their, this was their, their national song about the deliverance of their people. Our national anthem in this nation, the Star-Spangled Banner, gives glory to the deliverance of our people in the War of 1812, as our national enemy was trying to reach out and destroy us. After they lost us, Great Britain said, oh, we're going to try to grab them back again. A bit like Pharaoh. After Pharaoh had lost the children of Israel, he said, I'm going to try and reach out and grab them back again. So much like our national anthem is our deliverance from our oppressors, Great Britain, and Parliament, and the abuses, this is the national anthem of the children of Israel as they escaped through God's divine providence from Pharaoh's long arm trying to drag them back again. So without further ado, if you've got your sheet, we're going to close this Bible study. We're going to close this lesson, Bible lesson now by singing this song. And these young people who know it pretty well are going to lead us. And I want all of you to sing with us, all right? Everyone sing. We're getting ready to leave. This is the end of this Bible study. It's a wonderful song. It's based out of Exodus 15. Let's sing. Shall we sing? I will sing unto the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse to ride in the 
Hallelujah. God bless you all. We are ready to depart from the sanctuary, and I pray that this has been a blessed day for you. It's a wonderful time we've had here this morning, and it's a marvelous story. And you guys, you people, have a, we have a wonderful, wonderful heritage. We have a wonderful, tremendous, monumental heritage. And I pray that we cling to it. And we do not forget from whence we've come.